0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Michael Morales, your host. Today's program will be speaking with David W. Stowe about his recent book, Song of Exile, The Enduring Mystery of Psalm 137, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Song of Exile weaves together the 2,500-year history one of the most famous psalms in the Hebrew Bible. It examines the entire psalm, including the more obscure last stanza, and it draws on historical and interview research with musicians who have used Psalm 137 in their music. David Stowe earned his Ph.D. from Yale University in 1993. He is currently interim chair of the English department at Michigan State University. During the 2012-13 academic year, Stowe held a research fellowship in Music, Worship, and the Arts, at Yale's Institute of Sacred Music. Among his other books, he wrote No Sympathy for the Devil, Christian Pop Music, and the Transformation of American Evangelicalism. That was published by University of North Carolina Press in 2011. He also wrote How Sweet the Sound, Music in the Spiritual Lives of Americans. That was published by Harvard University Press in 2004. And that book won the Dean's Taylor Award from the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers.
1: David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: So, David, tell us a little bit more about yourself before we get into your book. Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up in a town outside of New York City called Tenafly, right across the Hudson River and basically uh, spent my life up and down the East Coast. I went to college in Pennsylvania, worked for a while in Washington, D.C., did graduate study in Connecticut, and then got a job out in Michigan where I've been ever since, a very happy transplant to um, the upper Great Lakes. Um, So I um i'm a musician um, my my uh, research and teaching and uh, scholarly writing has been mainly about music uh, started out writing about jazz and have moved into books on um, Uh, Religion and music, sacred sound of various sorts, Uh, but I continue to be a musician. I played drums and saxophone. I just played a gig last night. So uh, I feel very fortunate to have a research field where I can think about music and sort of immerse myself in uh, something that's been a love of mine for my entire life. Now, what first
0: sparked your interest in the Psalms and in Psalm 137 in particular?
1: Well, I have been thinking about um, Psalm 137, actually writing about it now for over 10 years, Uh, Michael. I uh, uh, first became aware of the interesting musical history of Psalm 137 when I was writing my first book on American religious music, and I talked about the psalm a little bit in the introduction, Um, and came back to it a couple years later. I was part of a team that was pulled together Um, to work on a book on religion in the Caribbean, religion and music in the Caribbean. And this was a a project uh, pulled together um, by the founder of the Black Music Research Center in Chicago. Sam Floyd. And so, as I was thinking about how I might contribute to that, I became aware that Psalm 137 by the Rivers of Babylon has this uh, really important, interesting uh, history in reggae music. Um, and the, the fame, probably the most famous popular uh, music version of the Psalm, came out of Jamaica and has been covered many times. So it seemed like, wow, that would be an interesting text to explore and sort of trace the kinds of social political meanings it's, it's had around the world. Um, so I started with a, a fairly limited North American perspective. I became aware that the great American composer William Billings had adapted the psalm um, in the revolutionary period, uh, sort of using it as a, a patriotic song against British domination. And I knew a couple of the other versions, but um, as I dug further and further, I realized that I mean, the psalm was everywhere, and it didn't make sense to just look at it from the North American Context. I I wanted to give a a broader sense of the meaning and significance of the psalm around the world, which involved tracing it back to um, the Middle East and to Europe, where it's played uh, a really important role over 2,000 years in Christianity, uh, as well as Judaism. So, uh, what began as a, a paper. Uh, or a book chapter uh, expanded, Um, I was finding more and more material. And it seemed like it would actually be a great candidate for a short book. And I was able to get a research fellowship at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, which was really invaluable because it gave me a year to um, broaden and expand and uh, deepen my research, especially on the um, original context of the psalm. Uh, sort of uh, 6th century BCE Judean Babylonian context. And so um, I was able to to really read widely. And as an Americanist, uh, American Studies scholar, obviously this was a very far removed field for me. So I I in a book on a nine-verse psalm is probably enough, and so I kind of wrapped it up. But, you know, I continue to come across new stories about the psalm, new musical versions, so it, it, it seems to be a sort of ongoing, continuing project.
0: For those in our audience not familiar with Psalm 137, summarize its basic content for us and then explain the historical context of this
1: psalm in ancient Israel. Right. Um, and, and one thing I found in doing this research, Michael, is that um, after a while, when you're working on a project, you assume that everyone you talk to has heard of Psalm 137. And, and, <laughs> right. and then I, I, I had to continually remind myself, no, this is not common knowledge. Um, but when I mentioned some of the famous lines from the Psalm um, uh, by the rivers of Babylon, uh there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. Um, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Uh, that's the opening of the psalm, more or less. And so it's the only psalm out of 150. Um, Hebrew Psalms, which has a particular setting, a particular time and place. Um, other psalms refer to various historical events, but in in a more generic sense you don't have a sense that they're being placed at a particular location but psalm 137 is it's it's narrated uh, the the opening uh, by a river in babylon a, gr- a group of judean captives who are mourning and are being taunted by their captors the babylonians who are taking them into exile who um ask them you know um, sing us one of the songs of zion you know, a sort of taunting um, <clears throat> request, and the Judeans asked themselves, you know, how can we do this? How should we do this? Should should we even sing? So the events are are very historically specific. Um, the Babylonian captivity stretched over about a fifty year period. Uh, there were actually three uh, exile uh, movements of Judeans taken from uh uh the area around Jerusalem and taken up to Babylon, which is off to the the northeast. Um and so this was part of um a move by Babylon to uh create a, a buffer state between um its own position in what is now Iraq. Okay that's that's where Babylon is Babylonia. Um, and so they had an interest in uh, Judah as a territory which was adjoining and could create a kind of buffer zone between uh, Babylon and Egypt. Um, so they d- didn't really have great designs on the territory. Um, but there was resistance from the Judeans. Um, the, the Judean uh, kings uh, basically resisted this, this kind of subjugation. Um, and so uh, various contingents of uh, royals and priests and other social elites were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon um, in three different waves. And um, basically taken into the court of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, so they were not treated poorly. Uh, they were just—it um, was part of the strategy of keeping keeping the enemy or keeping the potential enemy close. Uh, so the, the king Jehoiachin was was kept at court. He was treated very well, and he's he's um, um, mentioned as uh, eating at at Nebuchadnezzar's uh, table so so you've got this um population of uh judean elites living in exile in the court and then you've got a a larger population of more ordinary uh, Judeans who stay in stay in Judah. I mean, they really have no interest to Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, these are these are um, people referred to as, as people of the land or the Galut, and, and they and they stay behind. Um, but there's continuing resistance, uh, and an, another king in Jerusalem basically uh, refuses to um, accept Mesopotamian. Domination and finally uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had enough uh, and goes in and um, lays conquest to Jerusalem and uh, destroys the temple and puts um, the, the the king and his sons to, to death and so this is this is a more sort of uh uh harrowing uh destruction and so so this is the the memory that is um is referred to in the second section of the psalm um the the sort of uh nostalgic longing for jerusalem and this sense of uh great violence uh, visited on the sacred space of the temple so, as your
0: book title suggests, this psalm is a song of exile, of people longing for their homeland.
1: Is there any hope in
0: this psalm as well?
1: Yeah, there, there's there's a hope. Um, the the second section of the psalm is is about sort of uh, forcing memory, um, holding the memory of Jerusalem um, close, and you know, vowing not to forget Jerusalem, um, and a sense that yeah, there will be. There will be a return. And then the final section of the psalm uh, takes a more violent turn and sort of engages in a certain amount of um, violent fantasizing about the punishment of the Babylonians and the Edomites who assisted in in the destruction of, of the temple. So there's really three distinct sections of the psalm, even though it's very short. It's it's nine verses. It 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 has some uh, different different voices, uh, different modes of address, and and really different moods. So it's a it's a rich it's a rich document, um, and it sort of captures a sense of uh, the immediate location, but also the need to remember and the need to look ahead to the future and some sort of a divine retribution, divine judgment against people that um, have destroyed God's chosen people.
0: Your book is divided into three major sections, history, memory, and forgetting. And Those are the three movements
1: you find in Psalm 137. Yeah, that's right. I I decided to to divide the book up that way. And I was inspired by the um the great French uh, philosopher Paul Ricourt who whose last book was uh called His Memory, History and Forgetting. And um I sort of I, I meditated with that book and, and sort of thought about um, the the different uh sort of categories of experience that the psalm captures and so uh, the first section of the book part one um deals largely to lay out the historical context of what's happening in uh babylon and uh, around jerusalem and what different books of the hebrew bible say about this experience and it's it's sort of amazing how much of the hebrew bible is really influenced by is really a kind of response to the trauma of the exile so that's um that's in part one, um, under the uh, under the title of of history. Um, second part, memory, uh, deals with this the oath of memory um, that the psalmist takes to, to not forget Jerusalem. Really interesting May My right hand is turning. May my tongue now I forget Jerusalem. So the psalmist is actually sort of enforcing his own memory, okay? Um, And it's an interesting concept because the evidence um, from the Hebrew Bible and elsewhere really shows that uh, the Judean elites up in um, Babylon were were not really treated badly, and if anything, there was a kind of danger of assimilating and losing this uh, connection to um, the homeland, and, and so there's was, there was a sense, there's a kind of division between uh, Judeans who, who stayed behind, who uh, looked with, with some disfavor on the elites who seemed to assimilate up in, in Babylonia. So the issue of memory becomes very important. And then the third section of the book, um, uh, f- forgetting uh really deals with the, the issue of, you know, what, what do we do with the violent rage that comes out of these sorts of historical uh, traumas? Um, and there have been, as you know, a whole succession that have affected uh, uh, Jews over history, most recently, of course, most infamously in the Holocaust. So, issues of uh, memory, forgetting, and forgiveness and ways in which um, the the sort of challenge that the psalm lays down is very much on the minds of uh, people in the present day who are are dealing with mass atrocity and forced migration on really a daily basis around the world. The trace
0: echoes of Psalm 137 throughout cultures of the world like Korea, uh, Cuba, Ireland. Uh, This is a monumental task. How did you go about your research?
1: Uh, Well, it's yeah, Michael, it's it it was a it was a great experience in the the sort of cumulative riches that come out of a research project and and the sort of body of of scholars that are out there who, um, you know, know bits and pieces of 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 the Samhain. 137 story no bit you know musical examples um and so over this period of 10 years you know as i was the beneficiary of all sorts of helpful advice um from other scholars from ministers from lay people who who knew these songs um and of course the the riches of the internet make this kind of research a lot more in A lot more um, accessible and convenient. And so I I really stumbled on quite a few versions through very mundane means like Google searches. Um, Believe it or not, I'm not ashamed to admit that I got a couple of uh, good leads from Wikipedia. Exactly the kind of source where, you know, people, people weigh in and you're likely to hear from, from someone who might not, have any scholarly publications but they have uh, a a very interesting sort of um, anecdote or uh, an obscure reference so um, as far as tracing it through the different national and and ethnic groups um, yeah I mean I I would stumble on different books and and articles I mean I did find some really good ones during that uh, fellowship year at Yale and just became aware that this psalm has been uh, you know, much, much favored and a sort of galvanizing message for for lots of uh, lots of ethnic groups in America, immigrant groups who left a homeland, uh, felt that they were in some sort of exile in North America, and retained this sort of nostalgic longing for um, a homeland. So, you know it. it the book um, that, that deals with the Irish, Irish experience and music in North America actually includes, you know, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land in the title. I mean, there's dozens of books out there that that use some version of that line, um, or by the rivers of Babylon. So uh, I can't even begin to remember where all these different different leads came, but, I mean, just Hmm. the full range of research possibilities. David, you mentioned in your book how some have drawn analogies
0: uh, to the Cuban exile, to give one example, and that seems especially relevant in as much as Fidel Castro has recently died. Can you discuss that comparison for a moment?
1: Yeah, I thought um, Cuba was a really fascinating analogy, and, and I really based my discussion there on the work of a couple Cuban-American uh, theologians who, who really worked it out in, in some detail, and and one of whom, uh, a feminist theologian had actually left Cuba about the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, from a sort of upper-class family, had come to North America thinking it was a temporary move that, that uh, Castro would, would, would have been um, uh, deposed and she would have been allowed to return but as time went on she realized wow. No, this is this is my new home This strange land is my home and so it became a very kind of personal psalm um, of, of of Longing for a country that she didn't really choose uh, To leave she she was a young woman at the time But I think the analogy really works uh, because there, there are three three elements um, there is the the population that stays behind in in Cuba um, as the Judean, the majority of Judeans stayed behind in, in Judah, then there's this smaller group of elites who are forced out of or who escape from Cuba at the time that Castro rises to power. And there's a great story about some of these folks leaving Cuba in their tuxedos and, and cocktail dresses on, on, on New Year's Eve because um, – they, they realized they had to get out quickly. And then the third element that makes the analogy work is, is the presence of this, this large sort of looming imperial force to the north. Okay, so the United States, uh, like like Babylon, it sort of welcomes the elite Cubans um, who, who come to America and... Um, Looks out for their interests, but there's this kind of tension between those two populations, and a certain amount of resentment from the Cubans who 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 stay behind, who um, you know have to have to struggle under the conditions of um, American hegemony, and you know the the challenges of a sort of um, chaotic and uneven economy, um, and also. You know, the sense that uh, um, the people who left, first of all, they, they carry their privileges with them and um, they think of themselves as the, the sort of saving remnant of Cuba. And um, I think a, a certain amount of trepidation that um, when the communist regime is finally ended, those Cuban Americans will simply come back and, and reassert their, their status. Um, so there's lots of national groups, ethnic groups, where you have exile, where you have forced um, uh, migration to a new country and this nostalgic um, longing. But the, the dynamic between the Cubans and the Cuban-Americans, I think, is, is quite unique and really fits the circumstances um, of, of the Somme quite well.
0: Thank you. That's good. Uh, what are some other ethnic or cultural appropriations you can highlight for us
1: about uh, about the Irish um, and also the the Koreans? Um, Co- Koreans have uh, who um, are are the most uh, Christian population in in Asia. Um, so there's there's quite a bit of Christianity in in the Korean population as well as among Korean Americans, um, as well as as uh, Buddhism and other religions, uh, uh, of course, but um, this sense of, of uh, being displaced, of, of um, um, populations moving to Hawaii as laborers, um, and eventually some of them moving back to Korea, uh, others continuing on to, to the West Coast. Um, I think in the case of, of the Irish and the Koreans, again, there's an interesting dynamic where you have uh, peoples that uh, sort of exist and fight for their sovereignty uh, in, in the shadow of, of major um, imperial powers. Right. So for the Irish, there is this presence of of the British who are occupiers and colonizers for um, for hundreds of years. So there's this kind of resentment of of Britain. I think for Korea, uh, the analog would be another island nation, Japan, who um, establish. Dominance and um, annexation of of Korea, um, and and so there's again the sense that um, um, there's this uh, uh, oppressive power close at hand, which uh, is is driving populations to strange lands to these foreign lands uh, in order to you know, establish a more secure existence in the african-american church uh, and in Afri- african-american politics more generally going back to Frederick Douglass who chose the psalm text uh, for the centerpiece of probably his most famous single piece of writing what to a slave is the fourth of July um, Which he delivered in Rochester, New York, and makes a very strong case that um, the enslaved um, Africans and the free uh, Africans in America are in the position of the Judeans uh, who are being basically coerced and mocked and oppressed by the United States. And so, why in the world uh, would they celebrate the Fourth of July when the ideals of that holiday are? are 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 perniciously uh being violated in their own experience um and so the the psalm has been picked up in the black church by black preachers um frederick Douglass himself was was not a minister but um it, it's one of the texts that has really inspired, generated some um, amazing preaching, probably most famously by uh, the great Baptist preacher C.L. Franklin from Detroit, who um, was probably the most visionary um, Martin Luther King said he was his f- favorite preacher, and he he preached a, a great um, sermon on the psalm, asking the question, you know, should should we sing right um, in this strange land? And answering it affirmatively, that yes, it's it's our obligation to free to sing as an expression of of freedom and determination to rise above uh, racial oppression in the United States. Um, so C.L. Franklin uh, made a great version, and it's it's figured among a lot of uh, a lot of other preachers. Jeremiah Wright, who became famous during President Obama's first run for the White House, um, became very controversial. But a leading uh, minister in in Detroit um, had a very powerful sermon, uh, really narrating. Um, the side of the Babylonian captivity from the book of Daniel, because after all, Daniel is a Judean who is taken in by Nebuchadnezzar's courts and sort of stands up to the king, and sort of um, through his powers of dream interpretation uh, is able to establish himself in in the court. So, so Jeremiah Wright gives gives a really interesting experience um, sermon again, a kind of analogy. Um, amid um, oppression where people are being asked to take different names and to forget their language and to forget their, their religion. Um, and he says in that sermon, um, but the Babylonians went too far when they asked the Judeans to give up their religion um, because they had the audacity to hope. The religion gave them the audacity to hope. And when I read that line, I realized well, wow. Barack Obama could well have been sitting in that church. This was a church he attended in Chicago. And it wouldn't have surprised me, I wasn't able to confirm this, but um, that that phrase, the audacity to hope, lodged in his memory at that point. And, um, of course, that became the title of his, his second book. If I could mention one more example, um, back to uh, Jamaica and the Rastafarian uh, religion and the reggae music that came out of Rastafarianism, um, this, is, this is a place um, where you find the concept of, of Babylon uh, acquiring a great deal of significance. Uh, Bab- Babylon becomes uh, a symbol of oppressive power, whether racism, uh, colonialism, economic oppression. Um, So anyone who's listened to any reggae music knows that the Babylon figures in song lyrics and and song titles. And so um, it's fitting, I think that probably the most famous um, popular music of the song came from this uh, Jamaican group, uh, the Melodians who were an early sort of pre reggae uh, group that, um, that made this song and uh, It starts out, I think a lot of people have have heard it, but by the rivers of Babylon, where I sat down, and yea, we wept when I remembered Zion. Okay, and it goes on from there. Um, So that's a a song that um, found its way into the soundtrack for uh, The Harder They Come great um uh, reggae f- great uh, film starring uh, jimmy cliff uh who plays a sort of rastafarian bad man in, in jamaica and that film really uh i think helped create a, a national audience for uh americans uh for for reggae music and um so i think that was the first glimpse and the first um Sounding that lots of young Americans got of of this new musical form, um, so I think those are those are some different examples. North American, um, uh, Caribbean, um, but but you can find the psalm being taken up in uh, South Africa, other liberation uh, movements around the world.
0: That broad cultural reception is amazing. The subtitle of your book refers to the enduring mystery of Psalm 137. Why do you think this psalm has had such an impact?
1: I think the, the emotional range that the, the psalm moves through in just nine lines, the sort of um, uh, emotional range that, that it covers from sort of um, the sense of betrayal and confusion and dislocation The opening of the psalm to this sort of commitment to remember, to hold on to one's uh, religious and cultural identification in the face of forces that are aiming to dissolve uh, that sense of identity. And then finally, the the sense of kind of violent rage, indignation uh, bordering on, on violent rage, you know, how how can these people get away with it, right? How can they get away with this horrendous deed, which is not just a crime against uh, the Judeans, but against Yahweh himself? I think that range of experience is uh, very much a, a universal um, um, experience for people who have, have as many people around the world over history have experienced uh, forced migration and dislocation. So there's a kind of um, universal quality to um, the range of of pain and anger and resoluteness uh, that can come out of that sort of experience. So I think we live in in the age um, of of migration and and exile, um, we're seeing this in Syria and and Turkey and northern Iraq. I mean, it's um, it's a huge uh, historical force that that's changing the world from Europe to North America, and so um, you know the patterns may be accelerating, but but that's always been uh, the experience of of great masses of of, uh, human beings. But the other thing about the Psalm is it's, it's got some beautiful, memorable lines, um, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Okay. So a a very, very clear image. Um, um, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Right. I mean, that, that, One line itself, I think, captures in in a very poetic metaphor um, the sense of um, struggle at holding on to one's identity, one's sense of a homeland um, in a place that seems to be pulling one in a completely different direction. Um, and that's a sense of a dilemma about, uh, you know, do we accept the new conditions? Um, do we sort of look to the future and this new existence? Or do we look back to the past? Um, and I think that oscillates, right, in, in people's experience.
0: In your epilogue, I thought this was interesting. You know the hope offered by the subsequent psalm, Psalm 138, can you give us maybe a word on the relevance of Psalm 138 for some of these themes that you trace in Song of
1: Exile? Yeah. I I, um, I, used to get questions about, you know, well, what comes after Psalm 137? And I always interpreted that to mean what happens historically. And, you know, what happens historically is that uh, the Persian Cyrus, um, the, the ruler of Persia, um, invades Babylon and he quickly takes, he defeats Nebuchadnezzar, um, takes control of, of that empire and releases the Judeans to return to their homeland. So there's this this uh, return and this need to kind of reestablish um, religious and, and political structures uh, in, in, in the homeland. Um, but Someone finally explained. Well, no, what happens after the psalm? As in, the next psalm. <laughs> so I, I finally caught on there. they were asking about Psalm 138, and you know, it, it's the, the psalms, as as you know, Michael, have um, a range of emotions from you know absolute uh, you know, jubilation and um, sense of of an immense gratitude towards God, a sense of of triumph, um, two psalms that really explore, you know, the the depths of of human suffering and alienation and and, and misery. Um, So I thought it was interesting after a a psalm that ends uh, with this very striking image of blessed shall he be who taketh and dasheth. The little ones against the stones, meaning the, the, the infants of Babylon, that you have an opening line. I will praise thee, O Lord, with all my heart. Boldly, O God, will I sing psalms to thee. I will bow down towards thy holy temple. For thy love and faithful faithfulness I will praise thy name. For thou hast made thy promise wide as the heavens. When I call to thee, thou didst answer me and make me bold and valiant-hearted. And then the psalm ends. The Lord will accomplish His purpose for me. Thy true love, O Lord, endures forever. Leave not Thy work unfinished. So it's it's a reminder that that after um, oppression and rage and violent fantasies, uh, there's there's a different mood. There's a, a sense of of peace and blessing and a sense of rightness in the world. Um, and you, you find that kind of movement um, consistently through, through the Psalms, right? So mm-hmm. they provide, as, as John Calvin said, a kind of anatomy of the human soul. And so I was really struck by the juxtaposition of, of a very lamenting, angry Psalm next to uh, a kind of uh, sense of almost euphoric peace,
0: Yes, the shaping and formation of the Psalter is a fascinating study. Well, David, you mentioned in your book that you have a link for this book, some resources available on your personal website. Can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. Very glad to do that, Michael. Um, you know, as someone who writes about music, I've, I've seen the technology just really um, explode and transform what, what can be included with with books, so it's no longer the question of do you include a CD with a book, but um, the website uh, really makes it a whole lot easier. So, I created a website with uh, images and video clips and sound recordings of the psalm. Many of the examples that um, are discussed in the book, and many and many others that are not discussed, and the website is very easy to remember. It's simply my name, davidwstowe.com and that website will, will get you right to the book. There's a few other things listed there, but I, I really created it as a sort of companion um, for this book, so you um, can find those materials, and they're organized according to the three parts of the book, so you can... You can follow the the logic of the examples
0: excellent well david it's been great having you on the show maybe before we let you go can you tell us about any other projects you're working on
1: yes um i am taking a, a slight break for the time being from academic and i'm actually turning to um a novel that has been on my back burner for several years. I didn't always know it was going to be a novel. Um, I thought it might be more of a memoir, but um, it's, it is going to be a, a work of fiction. And I've got a working title for it. Uh, it's called Learning from Loons. And it is a book about uh, family life and um, a marriage and the effect of that marriage on children uh, within a nuclear family and an extended family, but it's also got uh, some reflections on the the bird, the common loon, which is a kind of I think powerful symbol of lots of things in American culture, um, but has a, a kind of special place in in the lives of of these characters in in the novel. So it's been really fun to kind of shift gears and get back to a, a type of writing that I haven't done really for a long time since I became a, um, a scholar. Um, I expect I'll, I'll pick up uh, some new projects in uh, American sacred music. Um, one thing I'd like to sort of develop that I had to leave on the cutting room floor, so to speak, of, of uh, Song of Exile was some reflection on – um, the psalm and its place in, in in the axial age, right? Which is a very interesting period of time that's uh, that's been written about by Karen Armstrong or others. But this is a period about 500 BCE um, when, simultaneously, around the world, um, uh, very important thinkers, philosophers, and religious folk were basically laying the groundwork of the world religions. So this is the, the period when the Buddha lived, this is when the Greek philosophers uh, were writing, and um, I thought it would be interesting to kind of look at Psalm 137 and the exile more generally, um, and how that exile experience is uh, example of Axial Age thinking. So I've got some some good material. Um, It will not be a book, but I'd like to develop it into some kind of an article.
0: Sounds like you've got good work ahead of you. David, thank you so
1: much for being with us today. Um, My pleasure, Michael. It's been really great to talk to you.
0: We've been talking to David Stowe about his book, Song of Exile, The Enduring Mystery of Psalm 137. Again, that's published by Oxford University Press in 2016. You can find a link to this book on our website. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, goodbye.